0: She so is,
1: is the greatest female sprinter in the world.
2: It's not a girl thing; it's a skills thing. Welcome to Woman in Sport, a podcast dedicated to bringing you exciting stories and guests. I'm Tess Mostalis, and I'm Sophie Timmerman.
0: That innings was the best innings of the year by a man or a woman in any format of the game.
1: Have you ever heard of Eileen Ash, Rachel, Hayhoe Flint, or Betty Wilson? Well, after this episode, you will. Today we talk about cricket, a game that is very popular in the UK, India, Pakistan, Australia, or South Africa. We talk to Richard Thomas, an associate professor at Swansea University, and cricket lover who has just wrote a book about it. Together we take a look at some of the movers and shapers of women's cricket, the hoops they had to go through to play the game they love, and recent changes that put women at the top of cricketing institutions and teams. Now, before we delve into your book, do you have a favorite cricket match, male or female, that you could share with us?
0: I talk about it in the book. There there was an innings, actually. An Indian player called Harman Preet Kaur was in, in the Women's World Cup. Um, in 2017, they were playing Australia, actually. So, I mean, it was, she performed this amazing feat of 171 not out against the best bowling in the world, but it was cool. I mean, I remember watching that game live with, with my mouth open, thinking, what on earth is this woman doing? It was absolutely. Incredible I mean some of the things that were in that I've mentioned in the book actually were um shield Berry, who's a very respected journalist about cricket. He called it um, perhaps the finest innings by a woman outside Test matches and one that will attract fans towards women cricket. Somebody else said it re- redefined the possibilities for women cricket. Charlotte Edwards, who was um, former captain of England, said it was the best innings she'd ever seen. Uh, Wisden Cricket Monthly who's a magazine I've written for in the past said that pound for pound that innings was the best innings of the year by a man or a woman in any format of the game and and I was fortunate to be watching that live on the television um, and it was spellbinding it was absolute it was carnage really I mean what she was the, the way she was hitting that ball and how far she was hitting it was astonishing and she had this Fierce kind of determined look on her face, although I mean it was quite odd because she didn't seem to be enjoying it. she seemed to be so kind of caught in the moment um and fixed with what she, what she was doing. She didn't obviously seem to be getting a lot of pleasure out of it, but it was the most astonishing performance
2: you have written a whole book on cricket. Why are you so drawn to this sport
0: um well good good question i mean lots like lots of sports you're you're obviously both sports fans i mean. Maybe your love of sport is maybe something that was handed down to you from family members. Um, in in my case, uh, cricket was definitely handed down to me by my dad. So my dad started taking me to see cricket in when I was about three or four years old. The first game he ever took me to, I mean, I was far too young at four. No, nobody is ever going to understand a game of cricket at age four. And he said, in order to get me to stay there... You know, he had to buy me ice cream every 20 minutes all the way through the day. So goodness knows what I was like when he took me home to my mother. But um, my dad was a good cricketer, actually. Um, He played for Wales Secondary Schools in 1951. And yesterday, actually... I'd been looking for this item for a long time on the internet and actually found the program of the game where he played for Wales Secondary Schools against England Secondary Schools in August 1951. I found the program and it was delivered to me yesterday. And shortly after he, he played in that match, he became a student at Swansea. So 70 years ago this year, he became a student and he actually went on to be the captain of the men's university cricket team. Um by the time I was born, um, you know, he cricket was very much in the blood. And I think the really important thing that he did for me, as well as sort of introducing me to the game, he also introduced me to the people who wrote about the game. He gave me he gave me a book um when I was about 10, I suppose. And it was a book that he got on his 21st birthday and it was a beautifully I mean it was very plain cover, very unexciting to look at and a very unexciting title. It was called The Book of Cricket. I mean, you'd struggle to find a less imaginative title for a book about anything, wouldn't you? But this book was beautifully written, the kind of purple prose, the lovely kind of sophisticated, deft descriptions of of players, the beautiful kind of black and white photos, 100 100 years old or so of, of old players. So that kind of connected me then to the literature that had been written about the game. So, you know, I started to write my own. So I've, you know, over a period of quite a long time, I've written lots of articles for lots of different magazines and websites and things. And um, my dad uh, had always nagged me and said, look, why didn't you put all of this into a book? And I never took it particularly seriously. It seemed like an awful lot of work to me. And then one day out of the blue, somebody um, contacted me and said, look, we've read some of your stuff. We think that there's a book there. Uh, And of course, when somebody in the profession says that there's a book, you you know, your your parents are, 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 are sort of they're duty bound to love you and say you're brilliant, aren't they? But when somebody else does, then um, that was that was the catalyst, really. So I, I, I started writing the book um, and then my dad became very ill. So my, my dad had cancer. So I wanted to try and finish the book. I mean, my aim was to try and get it published before he died, which I didn't manage to do. But I did manage to finish it in first draft form. I got to present it to him as a big sort of massive Word document in a big folder um, in the first, last few weeks of his life. And he I know he got a lot of joy from reading that. Um, I thought he was just going to read it and say, oh, it's really good. I really enjoyed it, which he did. But he also gave me a huge long list of spelling mistakes and typos and um, things that we would sort of the scrutiny that as academics we would apply to a student's work he applied to my book. I was very glad that I was able to get him that before he died. That At least he got to see that it was going to be a book and it was going to get published and all of that. So that's the story behind the book. That's the inspiration behind the book. And that's who kind of introduced me to the game, really.
1: I think you mentioned a very interesting point. Thanks for sharing this with us. And it's also something you mentioned in your book, the role of the parents and these strong female parts. How do you think the parents and mothers took part in the development of women's cricket particularly?
0: There's a few examples of some very strong women. I mean, on the cover of the book is is a very famous Victorian cricketer called W.G. Grace, who's someone who kind of embodied the whole game. I mean, he would be recognisable to to people who know nothing about cricket. He was a very famous Victorian character. Um, And he had a very famous mother. Her name was Martha. And Martha Grace was um, her, uh, her father... Was something of a local inventor. Sounds a bit eccentric, to be honest. Uh, and on one occasion, he put Martha in a chair and he tied a series of kites to this chair and he actually elevated her into the sky to a height of three hundred feet. So Martha clearly had something about her. She certainly had a lot more courage than I would have had uh, being elevated to that to that height. But um, so yeah, lots lots of cricketers have have kind of paid tribute to their their mothers. I have, but as as I say, it's nice now that their roles are no longer these kind of support roles. They are, you know, playing active part of the kind of infrastructure.
2: This chapter in your book is a structure around several very influential female cricketers who have left their mark on the game. How did you go about choosing which ones to include?
0: I think most of them were sort of self-selecting. In terms of players, um, there are a number of very influential women. Molly Hyde would be one. Enid Bakewell would be would be another one. More recently, Charlotte Edwards, who's an England cricket captain, Heather Knight. Um, th- there's an Australian player called Elise Perry, who is probably the big the big superstar in women's cricket at the moment. The one I think that I was very keen to choose to write about was. Uh, Rachel Hayhoe Flint that that you might have noticed so Rachel Hayhoe Flint was a bit of a force of nature i think i bring that across in the book she was she was very she charmed people into kind of helping her cause which was t- was to basically further you know women's cricket. We have um uh, it, Lord's in in London is the kind of home of cricket of world cricket really. And attached to Lord's is this organization called the MCC the Marylebone Cricket Club. For the first time in its 233 year history in October of this year we will have our first woman president. Um but for a long time, I mean a long time, women were not allowed to be members of the club uh and Rachel Hayhoe Flint in, in a in not a threatening way, but in a kind of let's try and change things way. She tried to change things by reasoning that they were, you know, the fair and equitable thing to do. She tried to become a member, and the first time she tried, she was kind of voted down. But in 1999, you know, she kind of pushed, and finally women were admitted. Now, because of the waiting list, it's 20 years, we haven't really seen any difference yet, have we? Because those women who would have joined the end of the queue they haven't probably still aren't even members yet so um so I would expect let's hope anyway that over a period of time more and more women are going to become members of the club um it it's happening but i I mean think that was largely down to her not only was she sort of England's one of England's most famous and successful cricketers she was also played this huge part in kind of suffrage, if you like, off the field, you know, in terms of getting getting women up there and getting women's cricket to be taken seriously. Um, I mean, just to, to give you an idea how far we've come, when she played, I think for the first time in Lords, which is in 1976, there was a huge row uh, about the women using the men's changing rooms and that the women were going to be walking through this big long room, the long room, which traditionally women weren't allowed in. So um I mean we have come a long way since then but but I suppose in some ways it's a shame that those rules ever kind of existed but it's not any cricket they existed in I mean if you look at it's the masters now isn't it in Georgia in in Atlanta I mean golf is one of those sports where you know they've had those sort of arcane gendered rules about admission and you know people being allowed in certain parts of buildings and you know not being allowed to do this when the men are allowed to do that so it's not the only sport that's been afflicted by that but i'm I'm very pleased to say that the mcc is changing and it's becoming more enlightened and liberated and all of that um but so she was an obvious one to pick elise perry as I say, bringing it up to date was another one that that I picked, Um, mainly because the fact that she is someone else who's sort of transcending the game a bit now. Yeah, as far back as 2013, uh, British sports magazines were calling uh, Elise Perry the most marketable sports person in Australia and the 36th most marketable sports person worldwide. I mean, that's seven years. That was at the beginning of her career. She's only she's done astonishing things since she would have gone up, you know, she's a big deal. She's also part of the most successful women's cricket team in history. The Australian women's cricket team. They've just this week won their 23rd consecutive game, um, which is the longest kind of string of victories. So they're by far and away the best team in the world. And she's probably the best player in the best team. So, um, she's also uh, a dual international for Australia. She played, um, for Australia football in a world cup, a women's world cup. So she's kind of multi-skilled, um, and a great ambassador for the game. So I wanted to kind of give her as, as an exemplar of how women's superstars are emerging now, you know, um, in the same way that that, that the men are.
1: Yeah, I really I really like the way you describe these um, figures in your chapter and how you also um, gave some anecdotes of Betty Wilson, who postponed her wedding because she put cricket first. I thought that was brilliant. Um, so, you know, I think these are really remarkable personalities. Do you think you need these kind of, you know, outstanding personas to move forward the sport the way that they did?
0: Yeah, you you do. I mean, I think, I mean, another example would be um, Enid Bakewell, who you you might remember. So Enid Bakewell was another one of those sort of almost self-selecting women, you know, um, in the game. But when she was first picked to go to Australia and New Zealand to represent England, and this was in the late 60s, I mean, she had to pay for her own airfare, right? So, I mean, she was holding coffee mornings. She actually, I think she had access, whether she lived on a farm or something, but she had access to a ready supply of potatoes. So she was actually selling potatoes at the side of the road in order to raise money to pay for her airfare to play cricket for England. You've got to be dedicated. You've got to want it badly to do that, haven't you? No one had ever given these careers to them on a plate. They had to fight for them. They had to fund themselves. They had to often, you know, juggle other jobs, raising a family, playing cricket, training, staying fit, all of that. Uh, and the fact that they were able to do that in a way, as I was talking earlier, where, you know, even recreationally, men sort of take it for granted. They're just allowed to do that sort of stuff. They don't, without a backwards glance, you know, they, they were left with all of that stuff, plus their own careers. So I think that's what really, I mean, that really heightened my, admiration for the women that I talk about in that chapter and I think I conclude the chapter by saying look women's cricket has got this sort of purity and, and it's got this such these high values about it because nobody certainly up until recently nobody would have played women's cricket because they were going to become wealthy out of it you know it, 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 if they wanted a, a serious cricket career that was a huge amount of sacrifice. You know, a huge amount of probably raising their own money and, and missing out on other things in order just to be able to say that they played for their country. And I think, to me, that that's what sport... That epitomizes, you know, that sort of amateur approach to sport where you're juggling things, you're really putting effort in, you know, you may be struggling to kind of make ends meet, but you, you know, you're really dedicated and married to your sport, aren't you, when you're prepared to, to, to do that. I think they all have that in common, whether they were prepared to battle to get what they wanted and battle to be successful in a way that I don't think many men would have had to have. Uh, you, you may have remembered reading about another amazing woman cricketer called eileen ash i don 't know if you recall um her yeah, we
1: 're just going to ask you about this sensation of a woman who is still going strong at one hundred and nine, so please tell us more about her
0: <laughs> she 's in a hundred and tenth year Eileen Ash and um she they made her pass repass her driving test when she was one hundred and five, which she did um, but she she played for England. She was born before the Titanic sunk, right? She played for England in a test match in 1937. And of course, her career, like so many, would have been interrupted by the war years. So during the Second World War, she worked for MI6. And as I think I quote in the book, she's very diplomatic about what she actually did. And as much as she's not telling you what she actually did. So there is a general feeling that she was maybe involved in some form of espionage, that's speculation, but I think, you know, if you're in MI6 and you won't tell anyone what you're doing, it's probably a good bet that you're doing something like that. So then she's outlived any other international cricketer. She's the longest-lived international cricketer of all time. Uh, I think from memory, she's only the second international cricketer, men or women, to, to reach the age of 100. There was a South African man called Norman Gordon who 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 died when he was 103 um but she's still going at 110 or almost 110 she, she's sort of got this incredible kind of fitness routine you know she's got these sort of apple a day kind of approach to life keeps the doctor away all of that um but she's lived an amazing life and back in 2017 England England's women got to the final of the world cup at lords where they played india and um Uh, There's a tradition at Lourdes uh, where there's a big bell outside of the pavilion. And, you know, normally someone very well known or very well connected with the game is given the honour of ringing this bell. It's the five minute bell. It tells everybody that play is going to start in five minutes. And she was given the honour of ringing that on the morning of the World Cup final. And later on, she was spotted in the pavilion um so at the age of 105 flirting with a former prime minister drinking champagne and um so yeah an amazing an amazing woman and again who would have been through all of those sacrifices playing it for the love of the game you know putting other things in her life aside in order just to fulfill her love of cricket so i could not write a book about women's cricket without mentioning her because she's she's just amazing isn't she i mean i would almost out of all of the people that i've written about in the book I mean, I think if if you said if you could meet any of them and talk to any of them, she would definitely be in the top three without any question.
2: When I read 109, the first thing I did was to go on Google and check if she's still alive. I mean, it was really good to see that she was. It, she sounded like an an amazing person to talk to. I agree. Like, I would love to just grab a coffee or a tea or something with her. Well, there's a there's a there's
0: a, there's a good good if you look on YouTube, there's a good video of her. Um, only a a few years old, um, maybe three or four years old, talking to England's women's, current women's cricket captain, Heather Knight. Um, and they're doing yoga together. Um, so you just, you just start, the film just starts off with these two legs up in the air, and you're thinking that's got to be Heather Knight, but it's not. It's Eileen's legs are up in the air, aged 105. So, yeah, an amazing, remarkable woman.
2: We were talking before about how these women through time had to face many more sacrifices to use fun their career in cricket. Obviously, that is changing a little bit now. But I wonder if there's anything that women's cricket has that men cricket doesn't.
0: My dad, who was, who was a big women's cricket fan, he, he always said the same. We, we always agreed that um, technically we always felt women were better cricketers than men. It's like they've been, you know, we have this thing called a coaching manual, which is the thing that kind of shows you how to play the game in its most pure form, if you like. The way that the coaches would tell you all sorts of details about positions of your elbows and positions of your shoulder and being side on when you bowl so uh, and so on. And we, we both felt that women's cricket was technically very very good like women had were, were been coached very well they understood the technique very well. Of course things tend to happen a bit slower in women's cricket um, in the same way that you know that the 100 meter women's record is is a, is a little bit behind the men's clearly there's there's all sorts of biological reasons for that. I mean in terms of cricket I mean one of one of the metrics uh, that, that people tend to look at is the, the speed of the bowling. So in, in men's cricket, I mean, I think we've breached the 100 miles an hour barrier a couple of times. I mean, the very fastest bowlers that would be around at the moment would be bowling on a good day, perhaps 150 kilometers an hour. Um, women's cricket, I mean, the really fast bowlers would be in the early 120s. So you can see there's quite a difference in the speed, but um I don't only just put that down to kind of physique and so on. I think one of the things to kind of flip your question around a bit is what what do women's cricket have that men don't? I think it's more a case of what does men's cricket have that women are not given the opportunity to, which is to play the long-form game. Now, there's lots of different formats of cricket. The kind of longest one, which is a test match, lasts for five days. Um, so in a five-day game, you're getting an opportunity to learn your trade as a cricketer so you know you're do it you've got time to do things there are long periods of time perhaps where there's a relative amount of inactivity not much is happening there are these kind of lulls in play and during that you're able to look at the opposition work out how to get them out maybe look at elements of their technique that you could copy that you could mimic and it just makes you generally a better player by being immersed in the game now women don't play five-day cricket, or very rarely do they play five-day cricket. The cricket that women play almost all the w- across the world is all over in one day. So it's 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 crash bang wallop, with uh, w- w- without that ability to be able to kind of let these skills germinate and develop over a long period of time. I mean, just to give you an idea, the the man and the woman who who are who are captaining England at the moment are. Exactly the same age. They're actually born four days apart, right? There's, um, Heather Knight, who's, um, the women's captain, and a chap called Joe Root, who is the men's captain. They're both just about 30 years old, okay? They, they started playing England roughly the same time. Heather Knight started playing a little bit before Joe Root. So Joe Root has played for England 103 times. 103 of those five-day games, right? Heather Knight, who's been playing for England longer than him, has played seven. These long-form games, which is the game in its purest sense where you are able to kind of develop your skills, become a cricketer, learn how to play... Women don't get the opportunity to play those games, and I think that's one of the reasons that's a, that, you know why perhaps the fielding isn't quite as sharp as it would be in the men's game. Perhaps the bowling isn't quite as fast as it would be in the men's game. I mean, all of that is a contributing contributing to that kind of inequality. So I think one of the good things that's happened recently, um, and and I mentioned my dad again because my dad had had a favourite cricketer called. Um, sarah taylor uh, who is um a keeper, if you like in baseball terms would be the kind of catcher the one that stands behind the batsman you know and she was she was called or described as by another kind of international keeper of long ago as the best keeper in the world man or women man or woman i mean the fact that she was being seen as a cricketer first and as a woman second i mean that was that was pretty encouraging and The same cricketer, Sarah Taylor, in the last two or three weeks has been appointed as the wicketkeeping coach for Sussex men's wicketkeepers. So now we have a woman coach in men's cricket. I mean, that's that was unthinkable. I mean, not that long ago.
1: I think that's phenomenal. And I think it also ties back to just the success of the um, female English team. I mean, they've done incredibly well. I think that's also something you mentioned before. They've done maybe a bit better than their male counterpart even. Why do you think that is? What's the support base in England that makes it so strong?
0: Well, I mean, when you say they've done a bit better, I would say they've done a lot better, actually. I mean... Um, England's men won their first World Cup in 2019. Really kind of exciting day, made headlines all over the world. What was given much less publicity on that day was that women, England's women had already won the World Cup four times before that happened. Um, so we would all, everybody would know that England's men had won it once. How many people would know that England's women already won it four times? And I think they won it four times, not necessarily because the infrastructure of the game allowed them to do that. I think it was more of the sheer force of the characters that were involved, people like Rachel Hayhoe Flint and and people that have come since, Charlotte Edwards um, and so on. They were the reasons, really, I think, that, that just that these determined women who were prepared to sacrifice, prepared to go that extra mile, you know, it's the characters involved that took them to these successes. I think now as, as women's cricket is becoming a bit more professional I mean, obviously, you know, there are. Um, there's training, there's coaching, there's there's more money in the game, there's kind of the squad system, there's the development programs and so on. Obviously, that infrastructure is building at last. Uh, but I don't think it was there when England were winning World Cups, when England's winners were w- winning World Cups. It was all because they had some really good players that were determined to win, you know? I think things are changing. I think Claire Connor becoming the president in October. I mean, that's that's a massive deal, I think. Uh, we have a new tournament that's about to start, um, delayed from last year because of COVID. It's called The 100. I mean, basically it's cricket, but they've tinkered around with the rules. So I, I would say I don't like the idea of tinkering with the rules. What I do like the idea of is that this is a kind of franchise uh, tournament that's going to be run um, in, in various regions around the UK, bringing the best players in the world, men and women, They will be playing on the same day. So if you go buy a ticket to go and watch a match in the 100, your home team, the women will play first, and then straight after the men will play. So you get to watch two matches. But I think the really encouraging thing, two things about the 100, even though I don't like the idea of it, is the first is women's cricket is going to be shown on terrestrial television. It's going to be on the BBC. I mean, up to this point, women's cricket has been on satellite TV, so you need a subscription to watch it so it's going to maybe be exposed to a much wider audience and the other thing which i think is 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 very encouraging is the prize pot is going to be split 50-50 so men and women are going to be earning the same money for playing in this competition which which i think is which is great you know um I mean, you know, we're getting there, aren't we? Where cricket is is becoming, we're trying to right these wrongs slowly but surely. So I think those are two really encouraging things, as well as the the Claire Connor thing and the fact that Sarah Taylor is going to be coaching Sussex men wicket keepers. I mean, it, it's great, isn't it? I think it's uh, as women sports fans, you two must be encouraged to hear about those kind of um, those kind of developments
2: definitely I mean what you were saying about these games and uh, women and men being paid the same for that one game it's I mean it's still unthinkable for most sports so it's it's fantastic I wonder I mean cricket is also a big sport in countries like India and Pakistan South Africa and all of these countries also have national women's team that qualify for the World Cup and they have players like Shafali Burma India who's only 17 years old and who' You know, it's only at the beginning of her career and already ranks really well in world rankings. So how does the trajectory of these women teams in other countries might resemble the path that their fellow players in the UK had to go through?
0: Well, as with everything else, it's about money and audiences, isn't it? I mean, the, the kind of epicenter of world cricket is probably probably India these days. I mean, it's where the Indian Premier League is is obviously uh, uh, happening so obviously what they have in India is huge audiences, huge TV audiences. I mean, as well as, you know, huge stadium that are, or stadia that are able to accommodate, you know, seventy, eighty thousand 80,000 people. Um, they also have millions and millions of people watching on the TV. It's a powerful nation in terms of its administrative um power within the game the most powerful or the best cricket nation by uh, in terms of women's cricket by a long way is is Australia probably because of the kind of money that's been invested into the women's game the fact that they don't have so many teams to start with they just have uh, less teams so you're spreading the money across fewer but um, really the professionalism that's happening in Australia you know we are still a long way behind but I, I think what's really good and what's you know, makes me proud to be associated with the game is that we are making these changes, we are taking these steps, we are trying to redress the balance, we're trying to get rid of that century of inequality.
2: We're so happy you could join us today in Woman in Sport. I. Tess Moselis, and my co-host Sophie Timmerman hope to continue to bring you exciting new topics.
1: If you want to join us on this journey, make sure to follow us. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music.
2: And if you like the show and want to support us, you can become our patron on patreon.com slash podcast. See you next time.